I've, I've got something you'll like uh, right off the top here, which is uh, that I, I happen to watch, you know, kind of starved for things to watch these days. Um, so I watched uh, this film on Netflix, The Last Blockbuster. Are you aware of this? Oh, God. Yes, I am aware of it. I have not seen it yet, though. Um, my finger is always like perpetually hovering over the play button for it because, you know, I love I love stuff about video store culture. I love thinking about video store culture, but I, I just know it's going to be stupid. Well, you know, it's the kind of thing I, I mean, I would have recommended we do an entire episode on it if there was enough to discuss. Unfortunately, it's it's very slight. Um, so I thought I'd just kind of bring it up here off the top and, and kind of tell you about it. And I don't know, maybe the two of us can discuss it in more detail once you've seen it. But I would describe it as, uh, you know, yeah, slight, but but intermittently quite charming. There were parts that I identified with very strongly and other parts that I found um, completely baffling. So, I mean, basically, the centerpiece of the story is... You know, as the film's title suggests, this, you know, last blockbuster store that's being uh, heroically kept open by this nice lady who kind of runs it as a family business. But the documentary also tells the story of blockbuster or tells the story kind of 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 movie rentals and the history of of movie rentals through the lens of Blockbuster. So that part of it's kind of interesting. Um, so I didn't know, for example, the origins of the video store, which were that uh, VHS tapes when they when they first came out were kind of like a hundred dollars each, and so people you know couldn't really afford to own them. So you know somebody came up with the bright idea that if you buy a few copies of each one and rent them to people, you know that you can uh, you can create a sustainable business that way, and people can have you know home uh, home movies. And as I understand it, the movie studios were originally not in favor of video stores, but the law was such that if a vi- like if a video store bought a video. You can do whatever you want with a video once you first buy it. If you want to rent it out to people, you you can do that. That's right. This went to a court case, which is uh, at least uh, uh, briefly discussed in the film. And uh, yeah, the courts ruled basically in favor of the rental market. And Blockbuster soon got in on the ground floor of this with a kind of cost sharing arrangement they did with the studios or rather a revenue sharing arrangement. So they basically were like, you know, you can't resist the fact that there's a burgeoning uh, movie rental business, but we can cut you a piece of the action. And so that's kind of how it all started. And, you know, part of this is kind of told through uh, various, I mean, I, I'm hesitant to call them celebrities. I guess the most famous person is Kevin Smith. He's kind of the big get. And then there's a few other people. Jamie Kennedy is, I guess, one of the only <laughs> other ones I recognize. The star of uh, Roe v. Wade. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Star of the recent uh, reactionary film, Roe versus Wade. Doug Benson, the comedian, is in it. You know, but there's a few people who are just kind of talking about, you know, their love of video stores and uh, their love of, you know, Blockbuster in particular. And the part of the film that I kind of identify with, I mean, it it does appeal to, I don't know, a a kind of crude, but I don't know, very real sense of nostalgia that, you know, one feels for very specific experiences that no longer exist, right? So, uh, and the film probably in excess details these, like, you know, there's scenes where like Kevin Smith or somebody will be, they'll be holding a blockbuster box and kind of like lovingly stroking it. And then they'll kind of react as like, you hear the sound of it clicking closed and things like that. That reminds me of a line in Chinatown where John Houston says, of course, I'm respectable. I'm old. Politicians and ugly buildings all become respectable if they last long enough. <laughs> right. Well, that kind of gets to the problem. That gets it gets at the problem with the movie, which is that I stopped being able to identify with it 
uh, once it became clear, I mean, I guess this is implicit in the title, all of these people associate these experiences uh, specifically with Blockbuster. Like, it's not just like we're going to use Blockbuster as like an example of you know, a certain kind of date that people used to go on where, you know, you'd, you'd, you know, get some nachos or whatever, and you'd, you know, go and you'd each pick a movie or whatever. People associate uh, the movie stores with like a particular smell and particular kinds of candy, whatever. It's like all of that, but refracted through the brand of Blockbuster Uh itself, which like I just can't identify with that at all. And the film does something incredible, which is, like it interviews this couple who had a, a business called Pacific Video. And then it details how, you know, basically Blockbuster, which at one point was estimated to be opening a new store every 17 hours, <laughs> you know, and which went from kind of, you know, a few dozen employees or like 100 employees at the start to 90,000 in the span of a few years, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and, you know, basically Blockbuster offered to buy this couple out. And so they just kept the store and it was like renamed Blockbuster. And the film uh, pretty strongly implies that, like, you know, the great thing about Blockbuster is it's a franchise. So it actually didn't put any of these, like, mom and pop businesses, like, out of business. It really just, like, I don't know, enhanced them or, like, gave them a voice. Yeah. Or I, th- I think a lot of people would disagree with that. I think a lot of video <laughs> stores that went out of business would disagree with that. The irony of kind of celebrating all of these, you know, very specific experiences, you know, which I, I went to Blockbuster a fair bit as a kid, and, and I can identify, you know, I can connect the experiences to Blockbuster Somewhat, but you know, I also used to go to Queen Video a lot when it was open in Toronto and Suspect Video, neither of which is open anymore, although both of them did basically outlast Blockbuster, so that's something. But, you know, it was those kinds of interesting independent stores that Blockbuster was often putting out of business. And yet the film is literally asking us to worship the institution of Blockbuster. It also advances, I don't know, a kind of a a bit of a strange narrative about how actually Netflix wasn't to blame for Blockbuster's demise. And, you know, there is a certain amount of truth to this because apparently when Blockbuster was acquired by some big conglomerate, it was so profitable that they used Blockbuster kind of collateral so that they could run up more and more debt and then block but you know then they had to kind of like liquidate it or whatever when uh, the creditors came or something to that effect and so the implication is kind of that that's what killed blockbuster it also turns out that blockbuster at one point had a chance to acquire netflix uh, which they declined and so the film says you know had history been different you know today we could you could have been watching this movie on you know blockbuster.com or something and it's like i guess i kind of take the point but What's the difference? It's like, yeah. so so we'd be watching it on an identical streaming service with a different title. Uh, <laughs> and, and and actually, I'll, I'll go on further on this. And another way the film is wrong about this is you wouldn't be treating Blockbuster as this like a nostalgic fetish object if it were still contemporary. Like if, in fact, instead you'd be doing the same, the documentary would be called like The Last Netflix or something. Yeah, and we would all be talking about the Nicolas Cage and the Steven Seagal movies we used to watch on Netflix and thinking, oh, wasn't it great when that sound effect revved up when you logged in, the da dum sound. And that's when you knew you were going to be swept up into a world of movie magic. You know, didn't you just, didn't you just love searching and stumbling upon a movie like, I don't know, A Talking Cat and watching it. Uh, oh, those were the days. But actually, just reminded me of something else about the movie, which is that, you know, it kind of does celebrate. Look, I don't want to be too hard on it because, like, there are parts of it that are quite charming. The lady who runs the last blockbuster is, like, you know, very nice. I wish her all the best. 
But like, you know, the thing that I found most perplexing about it is all these kind of, I mean, I don't know, let's call them like alt celebrities, you know. Kevin Smith, frankly, you know, a guy who came up through independent filmmaking. Yeah, right. So, there, you know, there's a lot of a lot of people like that, although some of the people featured have had uh, roles in, uh, in pretty big movies as well. But like there's this kind of through line in the documentary where all these people are sort of talking about, I mean, they're implying almost the blockbuster was like this very like alt and hallowed space. Like it, they're literally doing the like, blockbuster gave me the courage to be weird kind of thing which i just completely part with that yeah because if you look at the bottom shelf you might stumble upon a copy of i don't know dead man or gremlins 2 and that would launch you in your path of being like a weirdo even though those movies you know even those movies are kind of exceptions to the norm of what was actually at blockbuster you know it's (laughs) funny i have quite a bit of nostalgia for the specific blockbuster of my youth I sometimes fantasize about how nice it would be to go back and wander those aisles and see that old copy of Time Runner starring Mark Hamill again and just uh, just look at it. But that has a lot more to do with just nostalgia for my own childhood than anything. I mean, I can give you kind of like the standard cinephile response to the blockbuster documentary, which is like, oh, you know, they were a terrible censorious chain. You know, they cut 10 minutes out of Bad Lieutenant. They wouldn't stalk The Last Temptation of Christ, et cetera, et cetera. And that would absolutely be true. And then I can give you the other response that's like, ah, but wasn't it great that these small towns had a had a gathering place? where people could go and and they could wander the aisles and they could they could see movies and maybe rent something that they never would have expected to see before uh and you know i mean i i'm not very sympathetic with that but you know i was just reading um in harper's magazine a friend of the show jonathan rosenbaum wrote a letter to them in response to that viral article from a month or two ago by martin scorsese Scorsese wrote that article that was ostensibly about Fellini, but was really more about changes in the landscape of film as art. And Scorsese was talking about how these big streaming giants have no respect for the art of film. They have no respect for the history of film. They've reduced everything to content and they've limited people's horizons because you can't find anything on Netflix Rosenbaum wrote this letter where he said, uh, Scorsese is a cinephile who has clearly done extraordinary and generous work in making world cinema more widely available. But you'd never guess this from reading his writing about Fellini and contemporary film culture. Here he seems to confuse personal predilections with history, but my choices as a consumer aren't his. Later on, he says, in New York in 1965, you could see Godard's Alphaville, But you couldn't see Godard's favorite film of that year, the jaw-dropping The Enchanted Desna, which you can now access for free with English subtitles on YouTube. And what about all the Iranian, Chinese, and Taiwanese masterpieces that were ignored in the so-called Golden Age? It doesn't matter whether they have commercial potential or Oscar recognition as long as we can finally see them, in some cases half a century later. Countless other treasures waiting to be found for those who care to explore. He concludes his letter by saying, YouTube offers plenty of alternatives. Scorsese may have to listen to the content mongers, but I don't. And I I think both Scorsese and Rosenbaum each raise some good points. Um, Something I I think I value about Rosenbaum as a writer is, you know, he's, he's one of the few writers that can sometimes make me feel optimistic about the state of cinema or the state of access to cinema. It's true that in the last 10 years, basically ever since the demise of Blockbuster, 
you know, it's true that things like Netflix and Disney Plus have a disproportionate share of the market, but I feel the internet has made film history seem so much more vast than it once was. Tonight, make it a blockbuster night. Well, if I can douse your optimism just a little bit, something I've been working on this week is a piece inspired by uh, a report I found at the BBC from a few days ago. This was published in uh, the BBC's New Tech Economy section. So, you know, a, a section that's covering all of the uh, the exciting things that, um, you know... <laughs> The new tech economy is making possible. And what piqued my attention was an article called How Product Placements May Soon Be Added to Classic Films. <laughs> so uh, the article delivers exactly what it promises uh, and more. Basically, uh, the crux is that, you know, there have been new advantages in CGI. Uh, it looks like kind of originally developed in Hollywood. Um, one of the agencies that the uh, the piece cites, at least some of the people involved in it worked on the film Black Swan. And the, you know, the technology is extremely powerful. It you know can look at an image and it, it can analyze an image. It can, you know, immediately grasp the depth, the motion, you know, the kind of texture, and it can insert, you know, whatever. So there were a few examples, which I'll send to you that kind of accompanied the article. You know, they've been working on uh, some Chinese TV shows, for example, where you can see in one shot, there are some people eating in an outdoor space. And then, you know, after they've worked their magic, there's like a big Coca-Cola logo in the background. And I mean, it's even more powerful when you're not looking at the process uh, by way of a static image. They also have a video on their website uh, where you can see what this looks like. And they don't just do it for TV shows and movies. They also do it for, you know, music videos in the future, potentially kind of live sporting events and things like that. You know, so there's some music video that they use as an example where there's like a car driving on the highway or something and someone's like playing guitar on top of it. And there's a big open sky taking up most of the space in the image. And then they insert like a T-Mobile like billboard into it or whatever. I love this idea. I, I'm envisioning it right now. You're watching Robert Flaherty's <laughs> Nanook of the North. And instead of going seal hunting, Nanook and his family decide to go for a meal at McDonald's. <laughs> Well, so so the article is pretty amazing. I mean, I, I don't want to beat up on the journalist who uh, who put it together, but I mean, he does seem kind of excited about this, or at least that's mostly how the article's written. It's the tone of it is mostly like, uh, "Hey, is isn't this pretty cool?" And then there's some sort of like faint countervailing views at the end. But so you know, he writes. Advertisers could put new labels on the champagne bottles in Rick's Cafe in Casablanca, add different background neon advertising signs to Ocean's Eleven, or get Charlie Chaplin to promote a fizzy drink. And then after a few weeks, months, or years, the added products can easily be switched to different brands. Uh, I mean, if that doesn't get you excited, um, I don't know what will. Well, that's great because in Casablanca, then they should probably update the war. It shouldn't be World War II anymore. <laughs> it should be whatever whatever conflict is currently raging. Uh, but, but, but wait, there's more. Uh, because there's another company that's mentioned in the piece that's taking this a step further, uh, where the ads are actually customizable. So just like on social media or when you're, you know, on a web browser, it'll, you know, kind of use your viewing history, your search history, whatever, you know, serve smart ads back at you. So, I mean, quite literally, if you're watching a drama, like a TV drama that you like or something, and it knows that you like beer, the hero will be drinking like a specific beer that, that, that it's trying to sell to you. But if you don't, uh, they'll be drinking something else. Or if you read particular kinds of media, maybe on their like nightstand, 
uh, there'll be a, a magazine like tailored to your preferences or whatever that's like sitting there and is is added in by this uh, by this technology. So I mean, it's it's pretty incredible. Like all these companies, you know, I went to a bunch of their websites and like they they really take pains to they kind of insist that this is not actually there's this you know frictionless union of interest between you know the viewer experience because you as the viewer get stuff that's tailored just for you and you know the advertisers themselves because as one company puts it you know we help you break into the walled garden of like modern streaming or or something like that i don't really see any way around the fact i mean there is no way around the fact that like this obviously is going to make all kinds of culture and entertainment that people love substantively worse it's more intrusive than product placement as you've known it so far and it seems just another example of how a lot of the innovation that's supposedly happening in big tech today is really just about capital finding new spaces and new artifacts it can commodify. Like in this case, those spaces being potentially anyway, kind of retroactive commodification of the entire history of cinema and TV. If I can strike an optimistic note, maybe this is foolishly optimistic, but this seems to open like a whole can of worms. You know, when colorization came in in the 80s, so many film artists protested it and colorization really didn't work on the market either because people interested in those movies weren't really interested in seeing like Humphrey Bogart with chalky orange skin all of a sudden. So I don't know, it, it's, it seems to me like if there's one thing that the market might actually correct, it would be this. This seems like overreach. Right. So the companies are clearly aware of that. And I think that's why they sort of go out of their way to insist that this is not going to be particularly intrusive. This actually enhances rather than diminishes the viewing experience or whatever. The thing is, though, that might be true of certain certain kind of classic movies. Although they also take pains to kind of broadcast how subtle it is. And I think in a lot of cases with this advertising, you don't even really need to be aware that you have seen it. You know, it just has to kind of you know, make a very subtle appearance. But when you see the examples that are on the, the websites of these companies, I mean, they are very good at this. And I think, you know, we're already so oversaturated with advertising that, you know, I think going forward, particularly with a lot of prestige dramas and, and things like that, uh, it's just gonna be so ubiquitous that, you know, you're not really going to be able to differentiate anymore between the thing itself and the ads that are inserted in it because they're going to just be sort of one and the same thing especially as as the business model of entertainment and culture in general shifts to a kind of even more digital and kind of advertising based uh, business model i think that's a good point because we've seen that people are more willing to accept the tampering with of their favorite audiovisual entertainments than you might expect the fact that every sitcom from the 1990s, for example, has been remastered, quote unquote, to fit onto our current generation TVs. Like if you watch Seinfeld on HBO Max right now, the top and bottom of the image has been lobbed off. It's been cropped to fit a 1.85 to 1 TV. It was originally shot for one of the old style TVs. Now, I don't think that really destroys the artistic integrity of the compositions in Seinfeld. It's a pretty prosaic looking show. But even though it's not exactly a betrayal, it actually does make a difference. And it's just something that you sort of, I don't know, you just sort of accept it. 
And then, I don't know, if all of a sudden the characters in Saved by the Bell from the 90s are like drinking a modern day Coke Zero, it's one of those things that I think you'd kind of watch it and you would think, oh yeah, you know, you know, who cares? Not that big a deal. It's not going to be Humphrey Bogart pulling out an iPhone when he's hanging out with Ingrid Bergman. It won't be that, but what it will be is, you know, I mean, in black and white films, I feel like, you know, they're in some ways even more vulnerable to this because, you know, the advertising could be more subtle, like uh, using Casablanca as an example, like just imagine like where there was a glass of whiskey on the top of Sam's piano while he's playing as time goes by. Imagine that's just substituted for like a bottle of Heineken or something. It's kind of blatant, but it's also in black and white. So it's uh, it's also kind of subtle. I don't I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that that could happen. Yeah. And we already accept that if you're watching a movie on a streaming service like Tubi, Every 10 minutes, there's going to be a commercial break. And we're not really having big debates about how that compromises the integrity of the artwork. Um, so why couldn't it go a little bit further? You know, in some ways, it feels kind of trivial to complain about, you know, the ubiquity of advertising, or it feels like a particular level of complaint that isn't a very serious one. Um, you know, for example, I hate that when you go to a baseball game or a hockey game, which incidentally, haven't done that for a while, uh, that'll be nice. But you know, like I, I hate that you go and it's just every surface of everything is just emblazoned with like different corporate logos and stuff. I remember going to what was billed as a fan appreciation thing that the Maple Leafs put on once. You know, it's like a free game, but like there was just extra advertising. So it turned out, lucky me, it was also Home Depot night at the ACC <laughs> that night. Um, you know, it's like every stair has like a piece of advertising on it. There's people dressed as like a hammer or a nail like in a hammer and nail costume walking around like the stands or whatever you know and of course like every time the whistle blows you've got you know 90 seconds of advertising or whatever awful to be sure but it feels like kind of a, a trivial complaint nonetheless i do feel like the ubiquity of advertising everywhere just like public transit every public space every arena you go to and just increasingly like Every time you're looking at your computer screen or watching TV, there are worse problems in the world. You know, there are much graver injustices, but I feel like the ubiquity of advertising is nevertheless symptomatic of much deeper problems in our society, which like, is there a more apt demonstration that we live in not just a market economy, but a market society, you know, one where the market just kind of encroaches on nearly every area of life. Is, is there a more obvious example of that than um, the ubiquity of advertising everywhere? And especially uh, in the near future, it seems, in TV shows and movies that we love. You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. This is Paul Kersey. This is the story of a man who decided to clean up the most violent town in the world. Listen to me, Ralph. Give me the money. He begins where all the super cops leave off. Bugging has gone down by how much, sir? 950 a week to 470 you reported last week. Never make a death wish. Because a death wish always comes true. And you get to love it. 
obviously the big news this week was the verdict in the George Floyd case. And this episode is, and this choice of movie is not a direct response to that. We don't have anything really original to contribute to that topic. I think I picked this particular movie more as a response to just a particular mood that I was feeling. First of all, I thought this might be a good week to do something that was dark and ugly. And I felt that it might be a good week to do something that is more right wing kitsch and make fun of it a little bit. And also to do something that was vaguely on the topic of law and order. And when people like Luke and myself think of the 1970s American cinema, I think our first thoughts tend towards, you know, the usual suspects, your Godfathers, your Mean Streets, your Nashvilles, classic American auteur movies of that time. But there are many parallel American cinemas, and one of them is that in the 70s, there was this particular wave of popular silent majority movies Movies like Dirty Harry, Walking Tall, and especially this film, Death Wish, from 1974. And these movies depict law enforcement institutions as being hampered by bureaucracy, ill-equipped to handle the explosion of crime in our cities, or in the case of Walking Tall, in the country. And what we really need is for some brave heroic man some man who he may have heard what the law allegedly is but he knows what's right and he's going to step up and he's going to do what's right and death wish also is a movie that was sprung from particular anxieties that were coming from american cities at this time this is famously the time that new york city was bankrupt perceived by many people as being this crime-ridden hellhole and you know what if what if you got batman in there you know what if you got someone in there who could just clean up the streets once and for all actually as i say this i realized that taxi driver which we talked about on the podcast and which was quite a big hit in its day it was like weirdly part of this wave too but it came at it from a different angle This movie, Death Wish, is the first of a long franchise of films that got increasingly silly as it went along. It stars Charles Bronson as mild-mannered, upper-middle-class New York City architect Paul Kersey. He's living with his wife of many years in New York's Upper West Side. We open with the two of them on a beach enjoying each other's company. Just as soon as you see that beach scene, you know something's going to go down. When Charles Bronson is not home, his wife and his adult daughter suffer a home invasion. His wife is murdered. His daughter is sexually assaulted, essentially into a catatonic state. Bronson, overwhelmed with grief, starts to take the law into his own hands, starts to become a vigilante, killing muggers left and right. And his identity is a mystery to the people of New York, but he quickly becomes a folk hero, this vigilante who finally fought back against the crime epidemic that's sweeping the streets. So, you know, I saw this movie for the first and only time when I was a teenager. And, you know, the consensus around this movie when it came out among critics, among mainstream critics, you can see this in Roger Ebert's review, is that it's a very effective action movie, uh, uh, you know, a very entertaining film, but that it's sort of morally repugnant. It's a fascist film. And, 
you know, critics would sort of give it three stars on that basis. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm assuming you hadn't seen this one before, right, Luke? No, we talked about Death Wish 3 on a previous episode, probably 18 months ago. Mm. And so I had kind of a general idea of what of what to expect. And, um, you know, my expectations were uh, were met exactly, I think. <laughs> I mean, my general understanding of the Death Wish franchise is that it's a series animated by the kind of I mean, you, you mentioned the phrase law and order, you know, a phrase which uh, Richard Nixon famously used in his 1968 campaign. That theme has often been, you know, a kind of dog whistle uh, for, you know, figures like Nixon, also Reagan and, and I think, you know, Clinton as well. You know, since since the you know late 1960s, at least that phrase and all of the associations with it um, have been part of the ambient noise of, of American politics. And, you know, the Death Wish series, for me anyway, is, you know, the perfect embodiment of everything that phrase is meant to imply. You know, the the thesis of every one of these movies is that there's a silent majority of good, law-abiding citizens, the kinds of people who go for holidays in the Caribbean and just want to get on with their lives. (laughs) Um, And then there's a vast, undifferentiated mob that is completely feral. It is without reason. And it does it for pleasure. They're sadistic. Yeah, it's sadistic. It's bloodthirsty. And it's being enabled by, you know, the, uh, you know, the mushy lib values of, you know, kind of uh, the the post New Deal bureaucracy, you know, the bureaucracy of of America's post New Deal and post war settlement. And this film, you know, uh, is very much that idea on steroids. It was exactly what I expected. I think it is basically a fascist movie. Incidentally, I love the idea of giving a movie three out of four stars and being like, uh, I mean, it's fascist, but uh, at least it's a good action movie. I completely disagree. It is not a good action movie. I think it is unbelievably plotting. I think it it was incredibly paid by the numbers. It did absolutely everything I expected it to do. Like, I would guess what the next beat was, and then 15 minutes later it would happen. And I think, like, my bare minimum requirement for a reactionary film is that it at least be, you know, entertaining. And uh, this this was not. Yeah, that's what really caught me off guard when I watched it today. What makes this movie less enjoyable than some of its sequels is it kind of has one foot in that 70s quality cinema aesthetic it devotes enough time to the Charles Bronson character, not in a particularly good or skillful way, but like it devotes enough time to his downward spiral into the life of a vigilante, his his emotional collapse, to kind of give itself like the plausible deniability of being a real movie. You know what I mean? Like there's the whole first half where, you know, you spend time with Bronson working through his liberalism basically and and those are the scenes where if you're <laughs> where if you're a critic you're writing that the movie is actually surprisingly thoughtful and you know you may you may disagree with its conclusions but by golly you can't deny that it's a serious work of art um. <laughs> so right at the beginning when uh, bronson and his wife have returned from their uh, their caribbean vacation he comes back to uh, the office of his building firm or, or wherever it is that he works and you know the first conversation that his uh, his coworker strikes up is all about how you know crime is completely out of control there are tons of murders and the guy 
guy says, decent people are going to have to work here and, and live somewhere else. And then Bronson says, by decent people, you mean those who can afford it. Um, <laughs> and then the guy starts ragging on Bronson and saying, oh, yeah, you have sympathy for the underprivileged, eh? That's your, you know, your, your bleeding liberal heart at work again or something. And then Charles Bronson, you know, agrees that he has, you know, sympathy for under, the underprivileged. And then his friend is like, uh, the underprivileged are beating our goddamn brains out. Uh, stick him in concentration camps, I say. <laughs> and then their conversation is interrupted before Bronson can object. But that's kind of the, the general tone of the movie uh, from pretty near the beginning. And it uh, just gets worse from there. Yeah, I love Charles Bronson in this movie. I, I think <laughs> I think he is, uh, I'll just say, less than convincing as a Manhattan effete liberal architect architect <laughs> okay i mean we this is like this is shooting fish in a barrel but uh you know the film begins on the beach uh you know and it's supposed to be this like uh, you know idyllic couple or something oh, he looks so fucking bad <laughs> this 53 year old man with a face like a catcher's mitt and he's he's just you know and he's saying stuff to his wife like you've got a prime figure baby and stuff like that and it just does and then yeah then you find out he's an architect which i had to like it took me a while to even kind of realize that. I just assumed he was a cop because he has that kind of affect. And I assumed also that he was maybe, you know, Charles Bronson was maybe like 40 and I was just being kind of too hard on him at the start of the film. And I looked it up and it turns out he was actually 53 when they when they made this wow. movie. Yeah, so he is not, not a very convincing alpha male hero. Well, I read that an earlier incarnation of this project, it was supposed to star Jack Lemmon in the role, which... You know, I mean, what can you say? Charles Bronson has become iconic in this role in some ways. The strong, silent killer type with that face of his. Although it it would have been a more interesting movie, I think, frankly, with Jack Lemmon in the role. You know, a real actor, somebody who actually looks like somebody who might be like a middle-aged New York City architect. Anyway, there's the assault and murder scene, which, which by the way, is horrific. One of the most stomach-churning pieces of film that I think I've ever seen in a, in a major movie, at least. Yeah, pretty unconscionable that they included that. And one of the many uh, awful things this film does to kind of you know self-justify its reactionary message. There's an interminable stretch of the movie after that where Bronson, I, I think, again, is not particularly convincing as a man, racking himself with mourning and guilt. When he decides to become the killer, it's depicted as this, well, I, I guess it's supposed to be depicted as this slow entry where like he goes out, you know, one night he fights back against one mugger by like slashing him in the face. And, and then he starts to become emboldened. Well, what if I took a gun out? And what if I shot one of them? After he shoots the one guy, he goes back to his apartment and he throws up. But then he starts going out every night. And dependably, he gets mugged every single night because New York City in this movie is a hellhole. You cannot go into a park or a subway station or even walk down a back street without being mugged by like two really sadistic gang members. And I mean, despite what Roger Ebert says, it's not really an action movie. It's, you know. Yeah, it's not action when the hero just like effortlessly like pulls a gun on, on guys that are attacking him and just like kills them instantly. And he does it over and over and over <laughs> again. That's just the second So many the times. Movie. Shit, I'll kill you. Give me your money or I'll bust you up. By the third killing, he's basically become the Charles Bronson that we all know and love. And the movie then becomes more about 
the vigilante as a media figure. So I think my favorite scene in the movie is when Charles Bronson is watching a news broadcast. Apparently, like one guy doing three killings of muggers, the police are able to piece it together pretty quickly that this is the same guy. (laughs) It's also somehow a national and then also an international (laughs) news story. It's like it's a guy in New York stops three muggers. And then when you see the police press conference, it's like the entire national press gallery has come to this NYPD press conference. And then the film goes out of its way to show you like foreign journalists, like foreign correspondents (laughs) speaking like three or four different languages to report on this this movie has shown us that new york is a hellhole that every street corner there's some mugging happening and yet three murders of muggers suddenly everyone pieces it together that this is some avenging angel that's out there representing the good people like like could it not be three unrelated drug deals gone wrong i mean who knows (laughs) and there's a direct through line between how a movie like this depicts new york in the 70s to you know the kind of scaremongering stuff you see on you know fox news and and elsewhere today uh watching the movie i recalled a tweet that i saw yesterday from uh from bill corbett uh that was pretty memorable uh that he, he tweeted out just before the uh, the trial verdict in the George Floyd case. And he said, before the trial verdict is announced, I got to say, this whole year, people around the country have been told that Minneapolis is an absolute war zone. It's 100% false, stupid, shit-brained idiocy propaganda, mostly born of white people panic, fucking ridiculous nonsense. Anyway, not to be too topical here, but the way the film portrays New York, where like you just can't even walk down the street uh, anywhere, even in the Upper West Side, without being mugged, you know, there's a direct through line between that depiction and the the kinds of depictions you see from the the right today. I was going to say that my favorite scene is Bronson is watching this newscast, and the news broadcaster, in I think a bit of a journalistic lapse, starts to editorialize on the case. He says... <laughs> The actions of the vigilante, lawless as they may be, seem to be giving others new attitudes towards crime in the streets. Instead of helplessly allowing themselves to be mugged and robbed, a few are fighting back. So that's funny. But then it cuts to, like, man-on-the-street reportage. And this movie, like all these movies, you know, has a bit of a tricky time with the subject of race. So there are certain scenes in the movie where it strikes a bit of a, oh, you know, what are you, some, like, snowflake-triggered lib? You can't take frank talk about race. Like, there's a scene late in the movie when Bronson is at this Tony Upper West Side party. And he's listening to two people, you know, two of the New York intelligentsia are saying, you know, well, I'll tell you one thing. This guy's a racist. He kills more blacks than whites. And then the person he's talking to says, oh, for Pete's sake, more blacks are muggers than whites. What do you want us to do? Increase the proportion of white muggers so we have racial equality among muggers? It also shows us this old black woman who's, you know, one of the many uh, good citizens in New York who has been empowered by the actions of this vigilante. And she's like, yeah, somebody tried to take my purse and I may not have had a gun like the vigilante, but but I fought back. Yeah, I think that's pretty I think that's more an example of the film ass covering than anything else. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think I think it's attitude towards race is uh, is pretty obvious. We actually skipped over a few beats in 
in Bronson's transformation from a bleeding heart lip into a vigilante. Uh, I think the most important uh, sequence in the movie, arguably, uh, happens uh, before he goes full vigilante, where his company sends him to Tucson, Arizona, which, you know, his boss is kind of hoping this will help him get over his trauma. And while he's there for some reason, I guess he's working with a client or something. They're in this town that I guess is like a, a sort of mock Western kind of town or a part of a town that's mocked up to look like a Western or something. And then they see, he watches this kind of reenactment show. I guess they're on a Western movie set. Yeah, it's like a theme park, basically. They're watching like a Wild West cowboy action show. Yeah, and so there's this mock gun battle. uh, And then you can hear the narrator in the background. And the narrator says, the outlaw life seemed a shortcut to easy money. But there were honest men with dreams who could fight and who would plant the roots that would grow into a nation. And then uh, a few minutes later, he gets invited by one of these clients. The guy's saying, like, come to the club with us. And he's like, you know, I know you're one of those New York libs and you know, this is a gun club. We shoot guns there. And then, you know, on his first shot, he hits the bullseye or whatever. And they're like, wow, are you sure you've never shot a gun before? You know, I love how just like purely sadistic the film is here because at every step of the way, you know, after that one scene where uh, he punches the guy and vomits, he is just like high on violence. He's loving it. And, and more on that in a second, but the sequence with the Western movie set I think is important because the implication is that, you know, Bronson's character is actually fulfilling, you know, this long-standing American tradition. It's like, you know, hey, uh, good men with guns are what built the country. The film's real message is that we need to bring the vigilante justice of the American frontier back to cities like New York. The implication is that what we need to set our cities straight is uh, fewer New Deal bureaucrats and more John Waynes, you know. Know, that's the implication. And I think you can see from the critical reception that this movie received in the 70s that it wasn't entirely pitched just to the red states. It wasn't just pitched to Nixon voters. The movie addresses urban liberal audiences as well. You know, in the second half, when you see Bronson turn into the Bronson we all know, you can almost feel the director, Michael Winner, kind of being like, eh, you know, you can't deny it, can you? We've taken you on this journey with them and I, th- I think we all know that if you did this, you'd like it, right? I mean, come on, come on. <laughs> yeah, the film, which, you know, it takes such pains to emphasize. I mean, it lays it on so thick. It's like we learned that Bronson was a conscientious objector during the Korean War. <laughs> five minutes in that he's a bleeding heart lib with uh, possibly excessive sympathy for the underprivileged. We learn that his dad was a hunter, but then it was mistaken for, you know, a deer or something by some other hunters and was killed. And so he never touched a gun again in his life. We learn that he absolutely abhors violence so much that, you know, when he punches a guy once that attacked him in the street, he literally goes and throws up. But then after he sees this sort of fake shootout on this Western movie set, you know, his eyes are just lighting up and then he shoots the gun at the shooting range and he's just like, say, this is pretty cool. Uh, and then just the more people he kills and the more he fulfills his bloodlust, just like the happier becomes. And then there's a scene that made me laugh out loud where a character who's either his son or his son-in-law, I can't remember, uh, comes to visit him uh, having come from the hospital where he's been uh, visiting the Bronson character's daughter. You know, and Bronson has just finished, you know, I don't know, his fifth rampage of the day or whatever. Whatever. And he's got this like jolly music playing and he's like, come in, pour yourself a drink. And he's just having a he's just having a great time. He's got this big smile on his face. And, you know, this is where uh, I had to remind myself that the instigating incident of the film was, you know, him, him and his family suffering this absolutely horrific trauma because, you know, having kind of set that up as a premise, 
the film doesn't really allude that much to Bronson being traumatized at all after that. The <laughs> yeah. entire film is just about how much he's getting off on, on killing thugs. Well, there's a very sad scene where he's looking at his vacation photos, looking at the photos of him and his wife on the beach. And that's kind of the extent of him appearing traumatized. The, right. And then right after that, he goes out. And, I mean, there were, there were so many. Uh, he shot so many people. I couldn't keep track. Like <laughs> I was making notes at the start and I was like, shoots two guys, blah, blah, blah. And then by like the third or fourth one, which, you know, was only a few minutes later, I was like, okay, I'm just not going to keep track anymore. There's too many of these. Anyway, the movie goes on. Uh, Even though lawlessness reigns in Manhattan, there's still a high profile police investigation to find the vigilante. But it runs into a snag, or it runs into a complication at least, because the city officials, the mayor, the politicians, they have observed that muggings have been cut in half while the vigilante's reign has endured. (laughs) I love this so much because uh, the film even gives you a statistic. It says muggings have gone from 950 a week to 470 a week. And I guess the implication is that like, you know, he's inspiring other people to stand up against their muggers or whatever. And also the muggers are staying home because they're afraid. Right, right. I mean, that that's the implication. But I, I just I just love the idea that like how many people is the film suggesting that Bronson is like is killing that is like making muggers this scared and is inspiring people. There must be so many off camera murders that he does that we don't even get to see. So finally, when police officer Vincent Gardenia finally manages to arrest Bronson, He cuts a deal with him. We don't want to give the impression that the vigilante has been apprehended because we want to keep crime down. But what we do want is for you to get out of this city altogether. You're through in New York. So the film ends with a touching scene of Bronson arriving in Chicago and uh, seeing some young hoodlums at the station and uh, outstretching his finger as if to suggest that he will continue his reign of terror, his reign of righteous terror in a new city. I'm just going to throw this out there. I don't I don't really have an answer to it, but something that recurs in the original critical reception of this movie is a lot of hand wringing about the idea of like, well, you know, this movie is a call for vigilante justice. Typically on this podcast, we've been, I think, I think had a jaundiced eye towards the idea that uh, movies bear that kind of social responsibility. Do you have any particular opinion on this one? I mean, it, it's true that we've taken that view, but I don't. I don't think having that attitude precludes you from identifying a reactionary film when you you find one. I mean, in my research when I was uh, getting ready for this episode, I also found a lot of hand wringing and you know people trying to insert nuance and stuff where there really isn't any. I even stumbled across one argument that you know the film is actually making an argument against vigilante justice. Or Oh, because it consumes Bronson because he becomes nothing but a vigilante. Yeah, something like that. But I don't really find that particularly convincing. Yeah, I mean, he's he's he becomes the uh, the real all American man that his, you know, lib upbringing, you know, denied him or whatever. (laughs) I don't know how you can possibly uh, reconcile the idea that this is like an anti vigilante justice movie with most of the scenes in the movie. I think it's fair to say that this movie is nowhere near as good as Death Wish 3. Death Wish 3 is great because Bronson comes back to New York. He, he gets there and immediately finds that I think what his old war buddy or whatever has been killed and he, he goes to the bad neighborhood where things have become only more apocalyptic since he left and he basically just sets up shop. 
you know no more no no more transformation it's just okay well you know i'm i'm charles bronson and this is what i do he starts going to his neighbors and installing like funny rube goldberg home alone contraptions in their homes to kill the muggers really the, the only transformation in death wish 3 is that about 3 quarters of the way through he realizes that a machine gun would be much more efficient rather than coming up with all these traps so yeah, the sequels are much more where my taste lies these days. Tonight, we review an aging Charles Bronson in Death Wish 9. I wish I was dead. Hey. You know, earlier in this episode when you were mentioning the blockbuster documentary, you brought up the name of Kevin Smith, uh, a favorite name of mine. And I just want to very briefly introduce a new section of this podcast called Will's Business Corner, where, you know, I, I, I talk about some, some new exciting business opportunities that everyone can invest in. I was really tickled this week because news came out that Kevin Smith, he's made an independent movie, a horror film, and he is going to sell it as an NFT. This is the first time that this has ever happened, I believe. He's going to auction it off and whoever buys it and it could be you, it could be me, anybody who bids enough, they will be given this movie, the hard drives that it's housed on, all distribution rights, they will get it as an NFT. And that certifies that they are the one who owns it. He will have no ownership of it anymore. And you can do what you want with it. You can be like that pharma guy who bought the Wu-Tang Clan album and just put it on a shelf. You can do that with his movie. Or you can sell it to a distributor for more money. You can distribute it yourself. So that's funny. What's also funny is, in addition to this announcement, he launched his own crypto studio called Jay and Silent Bob's Crypto Studio. Um, So he's going all in on like the digital crypto market, which is just further proof that Gen X is the worst generation. Forgive me for asking, I'm going to regret it, but what is a crypto studio? So I'm quoting from an article in Deadline. Unlike the most recognized NFT marketplaces, Jay and Silent Bob's Crypto Studio will be a boutique crypto gallery with its own dot crypto address, curated by Smith and his crew. It will be built around Smokin' Tokens, featuring 3D art that will commemorate a different Jay and Silent Bob movie every month. (laughs) This is so fucking stupid. (laughs) The three Platinum Tokens packs come with all four colors of the Smokin' Tokens, along with exclusive platinum token that grants the bearer a crypto cameo in smith's next film clerks three okay so so basically it's like he's got this crypto marketplace where you can buy nfts of his characters (laughs) so all of all of this is incredible and like i'm reading this and i'm thinking this sounds incredibly stupid just on the face of it yeah this is like jeremy renner app level of stupidity but then part of me also wonders like is he just ahead of me? Like, is he, is this actually a good idea? And he's playing like 10 dimensional chess <laughs> and I'm just not there. Like, what if the future of film distribution actually is selling your movie to anyone as an NFT? Um, I mean, I certainly hope it isn't. I understand that's environmentally harmful, but I've, I've never seen anything like it. And I think I'm just kind of baffled and tickled by all of it. That said, I, you know, I don't know how it will work for his movie, but, you know, I'm just going to, you know, lay it down right here and people can make fun of me in 10 years if I'm wrong. I don't think Jay and Silent Bob's crypto studio built on artworks featuring the characters Jay and Silent Bob. I don't think that will be around a year from now. 
Well, I think I can put them uh, out of business with my own idea, which is to start a cryptocurrency that is entirely based in blockbuster nostalgia. Oh, man. I mean, if you can uh, sell me an NFT that gives me the exclusive rights to that copy of Time Runner starring Mark Hamill that I always used to pass as a kid and couldn't rent because it was rated R. If you can sell me that as an NFT, then you're going to be a billionaire. It is time for an honest look at the problem of order in the United States. Dissent is a necessary ingredient of change. But in a system of government that provides for peaceful change, there is no cause that justifies resort to violence. Let us recognize that the first civil right of every American is to be free from domestic violence. So I pledge to you, we shall have order in the United States.